Hi, this is Paula. And I'm Joseph, and you're listening to Life Lived Better. Well, welcome back to Life Lived Better with Paula and Joseph. It's great to be back today, and um, we're coming off of Valentine's Day. Yes, how was your How was your Valentine's Day? Love all around. Well, I had a great weekend with the girls in the family. We got together down close to where we grew up, and um, we did a one of those uh, solve a crime things you know you you order a little kit from a company and it's like a they send you all the police evidence you know the crime scene tape the photographs the mug shots the the file basically that the police and the investigators have and you have to try to solve who it is oh wow that sounds like fun i couldn't believe how elaborate it was um one of my nieces i didn't even realize she was doing it she was on her phone and she was looking through all kinds of things. So finally, when it got to us talking about part of the case, she's like, well, I just looked up the websites on all of these business cards. So there's real websites. They had business cards and they had real websites for them. Oh, wow. And the bar that they all gathered at that night, they had a website and on it, they like post, they update their photos weekly. So in that what you got to see on that on that website was photos of some of the people that were involved in the bar that night how involved that was if i was creating a crime you know to send to somebody to solve i wouldn't have even thought to do that right yeah me either that's you started crazy. calling the phone numbers <laughs> you know so <laughs> like, oh. wow but they they solved it i um uh, I interrupted. I made my great nieces mad a time or two because <laughs> um, I kept interrupting by chit-chatting. They were like, let's focus. Let's get back. I'm like, this mm-hmm. is what we do. This is how we socialize. This is in, in together time. And I ended up trying to do a dance. They tried to teach me 10, 15 years ago, and I woke up sore the next day. <laughs> That's how I contributed. <laughs> nice. Nice. And then, of course, uh, my my sweet husband gave me a steam cleaner. I mean, not a steam cleaner, a steamer for Valentine's Day. I've been mm-hmm. wanting one and complaining about my tiny little travel steamer. It barely gets a wrinkle out. What's up for y'all? We had a really busy weekend. We had a couple of things going on, a birthday party and um, just hung out with some friends. And then Valentine's Day, uh, usually I... I'm pretty good about cards and flowers and stuff, but this year I just it just kind of came so quickly. I still feel like we're in the holidays, the Christmas holidays. Mm-hmm. So I was not as prepared as I should have been, but Polo came home with a card and chocolates, and so that was nice. Um, but we just kind of had a low key. We'll go to dinner this coming weekend and kind of celebrate a little bit. That's good. I bet going this weekend there won't be as many like hard to find. I know reservations were hard to get and all of yeah uh, on the day. It's always so weird to me, the Valentine's going out somewhere because they have those special menus and you can't order off the regular menu and it's just kind of strange. Yeah. I don't think I've ever been out for Valentine's Day, like on the actual day. Mm-hmm. Those kind of things don't mean a lot to me. I'm not even like yeah. a you buy me flowers and that kind of stuff i love a good i love a card Mm -hmm. i love to read them and i love to keep them you know but the other like i buy fresh cut flowers sometimes to bring to the house you know if i'm at the grocery just because they're pretty but i was telling (laughs) joe 
Like I'm, I'm okay if people like that, but I'm like, you're going to buy me roses, buy me a rose bush, you know, something I can actually plant right. and it will be right. here forever. Yeah. Don't spend $80 on some roses that I'm going to throw away next week. What about the big game? Did you watch that on Sunday? We did. So that was one of the things that we did. We had a, a friend of ours had a little Super Bowl party. So we went to that. And I think it's the first time I've watched Super Bowl for sure from start to finish and actually like watched it. Ah. Usually I just go for the food. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a it was a good game and good company and good food. So it's a good time. That's awesome. Well, I, I was traveling back home that day so I didn't watch it and we don't have cable anymore we turned our mm -hmm. cable off a little over a year ago mm. and so we don't we didn't watch it but I did get on um just the internet re-aired the halftime mm -hmm. and so I just watched that I watched the halftime and I did watch the highlights of the win and all I'm Patrick Mahomes since he's from this area it's kind of like a feel good neat mm -hmm. he's a young kid and he seems to be a good guy I like seeing people like that, you know, well, we are in our multi-episode discussion of ab abuse. And in the first part of the topic, we defined abuse. We defined it as any action that intentionally harms or injures another person. And the first part, we looked at physical abuse, psychological abuse, and verbal abuse. And then in the second uh, part, we discussed emotional, financial, and spiritual abuse. And so if you haven't listened to those, we encourage you to go back and start this series by listening to part one and two. And just because of the depth of these topics, we always want to encourage you to listen with care. So today we're starting with some pretty big topics. And the first one is self-harm. And really when we might not consider self-harm when we're brainstorming types of abuse, but you know, like we always talk about in, in this podcast, self is just as important as all the others when we're thinking about quality of treatment or mistreatment. So the abuse that we're going to start with today is, is self-harm. And as always, we typically start off with the definition of what we're discussing. And the definition of self-harm is basically, some people refer to it as self-injury, self-inflicting violence, um, cutting oneself or self-mutilation. This occurs when somebody deliberately hurts or injures themselves. Self-harm is usually a coping mechanism that someone develops over time when dealing with stress and different problems that are coming up in their day-to-day -day life. I think two important myths that we should dispel right away about self-harm. One is recent reports tell us that self-harm is reaching epic proportions among young people, but it's not something only that teens practice. Adults also engage in, in this kind of self-abuse. And the other is that self-harm is not an attempt at suicide. Now, you can harm yourself so badly that you it does result in death, but that is not the intent of the person who's self-harming. Right. Self-harm basically is a person's way of dealing with intense emotions. Someone that's maybe experiencing like extreme anger or they're trying to avoid hurting someone else. Basically, it's something that brings relief uh, to the person that's struggling with the emotional issue at hand. Yeah. I always think about like someone who punches a wall when they're angry, you know, instead mm -hmm. of punching a person and that brings them relief. That's kind of um, how self-harm can start, you know, it can start as a pattern of punching a wall to express your anger, but then it turns into a coping mechanism. And I have not self-harmed in this way. 
I'm sure a lot of the behaviors I've done in my life are <laughs> self-harmful, but I haven't done this. And so I didn't understand it until somebody explained to me that when they do it, it makes them feel. And I was like, wow, it's like, it makes it real. Mm. It was such a, it was something I had not, I had not thought of it that way before. Wow. I always think of, and I coined this term years and years ago, but emotional cutting, which is mm -hmm. like, I think of when we emotionally are kind of harming ourselves and, you know, having that kind of inner dialogue that's so hurtful to ourselves and really kind of beating ourselves up emotionally. Mm -hmm. I think um, that's, that's something I coined as emotional cutting years ago. And that's for real. Yeah, it's... Some, some of the ways that people self-harm can be like scratching themselves, pinching themselves. Um, you mentioned banging or punching on walls, uh, banging on things, cutting oneself, ripping or tearing of the skin, um, carving into themselves, interfering with the healing process. So picking at injuries, things like that, burning, rubbing sharp objects into the skin, and also hair pulling can be one of them, trichotillomania. Yeah. And, I've heard, and I had heard of that for a long time, but I'd never thought of it as self-harm mm -hmm. until we did a little deep dive into it. One of the concerns with self-harm is that a person becomes acclimated to the pain. So they have to increase the severity of the pain that they inflict. So like maybe punching the wall in anger won't be enough after a while because they get used to that sensation. So they'll have to increase the pain to make it more severe. Mm -hmm. And then the consequence of that is that it really, it can, in, it can then lead to unintentional permanent injuries, infections, even death. I hadn't seen the burning until I watched a show called Georgia and maybe it's Georgia and Jenny. <laughs> yeah. The teen in it does that. And you watch her build up and she wants to do anything, but cause she's, she's in counseling and she's trying to cope in different ways, mm -hmm. but you can see, and you can see, she's such a good actor. You can see that the relief that comes over her wow. when she cut, when she burns herself, she burns herself with a lighter. The one scene that is so incredibly dramatic to me and it hurts me in my heart when I watched it was her mother caught her doing it once. And the way she reacted to it was so unhealthy. She started screaming at her saying, oh, you're going to do that yourself. Show me, show me, do it in front of me. I want you to show me, you know, and it was just like, she made her do it. It's almost like, you know, when you're a kid and your parent catches you smoking and they make mm -hmm. you smoke the whole pack. Like, oh, that broke my heart. The wow. mom is definitely not healthy, uh, but it's a great show. Wow. I'll have to check it out. Well, one thing to remember too, with self-harm, like a lot of poor coping skills, I guess you could say. I don't know. Would you call it a poor coping skill? Yeah, definitely. Maladaptive. Maladaptive. That's a better <laughs> clinical term. But basically, it's 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 a temporary relief that a person feels. So it's very short-lived. It's usually followed by some shame and guilt almost immediately after engaging. And it also keeps people from learning like effective strategies for feeling better, effective mm -hmm. coping skills. So that's a lot of times when folks have to, you know, seek professional help or seek, you know, some guidance and, and care. Most people keep it a secret. It's yeah. not something that they're open about. They usually self-harm in areas that people can't see, can't observe. They feel ashamed about it oftentimes. But hiding it also leads to 
you know, a, a pretty heavy burden that they're they're carrying around. And ultimately, the secrecy and the guilt, you know, affects their relationships with their friends, their families, and just basically how they feel about themselves. Absolutely. And and you can hurt yourself badly. I mean, even if you don't mean to, I mean, it's mm-hmm. easy to end up, we, we knew a client that, that had this behavior. And I remember they hurt themselves so badly one time cutting themselves that they had to be rushed to emergency room Mm -hmm. uh, because it was, they didn't mean the wound to be so deep, you know, but it just, it, it was. And especially like if you're using substances because, you know, you don't have the same sensation, you don't have the same feeling, you have a little um, courage, um, you can really, really hurt yourself and it can result in, in death. It's uh, scary. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and also you're at risk for bigger problems. You know, if you aren't learning how to deal with emotional pain, then you increase your risk for other issues, depression, substance use. Self-harm also can become very addictive. It's something that starts off as an impulse and then um, it becomes something that you do to, to feel more control, but ultimately it's something that ends up feeling like it's controlling you. That's so um, much like addiction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very much a compulsive behavior. And it, you know, like addiction, it oftentimes seems impossible to stop. You know, mm-hmm. you have to learn new coping mechanisms, new coping skills. And a lot of times you have to have help with that. You have to have assistance with with doing so. The bottom line is it's not going to help with the issues. It's going to make things worse. It's it's going to cause, you know, other feelings, the shame and the guilt that we talked about. It also can lead to just feeling lonely, mm-hmm. worthless, um, feeling trapped. And there are many other effective ways to overcome underlying issues. A lot of times we grow up not, for me, I grew up not being encouraged to, encouraged to talk about emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up with those those messages that boys don't cry and Mm -hmm. that, you know, let me give you something to cry about kind of stuff. And my parents weren't terrible people, but, you know, there were just some things that we, you know, I did not grow up in an emotionally open family situation. And I've always been very emotional. I've always been someone who's, you know, cries easily, who, you know, feels deeply. And so, you know, I can definitely see how developing self-harm behaviors is something that could become, you know, addictive and could be something that helps with those feelings if you don't feel like you've been encouraged. But again, there are so many other ways and so many other coping skills. One thing that for me that helped greatly was, you know, my parents got divorced at one point and part of the divorce was me going to counseling. And that was probably one of the best things that could have happened. There was a program called Rainbow Days. I don't Mm -hmm. know if it's still around, Mm but um, it was a really great program for kids. Um, That was something that was really, really beneficial. So if you, you know, if you have a child that's struggling with issues, you know, it's, I don't think it's ever too soon to start someone in therapy. That's why we have child therapists and play Mm -hmm. therapists and, and, you know, all types of therapists that can help any age. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I was, I wasn't, I'm not saying I was looking forward to it, but I was, I happily got my son into therapy when he was younger, uh, when I went through a divorce because it hurt him. And I, I couldn't fix what I had, you know, I couldn't fix what I had broken. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted, I wanted him to have someone else to talk to. And even if you aren't going through problems, even if kids aren't going through problems, just growing up is hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. And if, 
like they're the adults in their life don't have all the tools. And I mean, I don't, and, and my parents were great people. They just weren't taught, mm-hmm. you know, they weren't taught to talk about their emotions. Look, my goodness, my dad, you know, was born into the depression. They had uh, some other things going on, you know, <laughs> they didn't have time in the afternoon to sit around and think about how they felt. So it just was something they weren't taught. So how could they have taught me? Right. And so I know I didn't do everything right. So to get, you know, to seek therapy for my son when he was growing up was, it was a blessing to have someone mm-hmm. who had some tools to offer. And they taught both of us right. on, you know, just different ways, different ideas, different ways to say things, different things to do because because I wasn't taught emotion, because I wasn't encouraged to express anger, for instance, I turned that inward. And that's what self-harm is. It's mm-hmm. turning it inward onto yourself rather than pushing it out into the world. Right. And that's that's really lonely. That's a real trapped feeling, you know, yeah. a real, real, real uh, isolated place to be. So I, I just encourage anyone who has the willingness seeking professional help is not because anything's wrong with you. It's because you just want more tools in your toolbox and Mm -hmm. who doesn't. Yeah. I know as a kid, I struggled with being picked on and bullied because I was overweight and I was, you know, a redhead and, or am a redhead. And when I grew up, there weren't any other redheads. I was the only one Mm -hmm. in existence. And, um, you know, I got picked on a lot and that's not something that I talked to my parents about. It's not something that I shared, but part of the therapy was helping me kind of cope with that and deal how to manage that. But I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have shared that with anyone growing up, but, mm-hmm. you know, through that process of therapy, it's something that kind of came up naturally. And I learned some coping skills around it, which were, you know, crucial in my development. Yeah. And, and you can now use them, you know, on into your adult life to deal with mm-hmm. other things that just, I wish that kids realized, and you can't realize it when you're in the middle of it, but I wish kids realized all kids feel bad about themselves. All yeah. kids question, I mean, unless they're sociopathic, you know, I mean, they feel like they aren't enough. They want to belong. All kids are, all kids do. And they Mm -hmm. just, they take it out on one another and it's so ugly. Yeah. Someone could offer me billions of dollars to go back and live my life again. And I would not redo childhood. I would not, I would not do any of the years up to 18 again, period. It's ugly. And what kids are facing today. No, thank you. Right. My life on social media back then. Oh no. (laughs) <laughs> back no. when my space was around <laughs> no evidence i don't need i, I don't, don't want evidence of what i was <laughs> <laughs> the next topic on our agenda today and the last in our uh line of abuse is sexual abuse and sexual abuse could be an episode of its own and there are so many components to sexual abuse but the definition we kind of boiled it down to the common thread is the loss of power and control that the victim feels. We think probably about sexual assault as somebody like jumping out from behind a building to rape you. That's only one kind of sexual assault and stranger rape does occur, but so does date rape, partner rape, other forms of sexual assault, childhood sexual violations. So there's just so many 
And of course, we only can look at a little bit of this, but we'll do our best to go into as much detail as possible. So how common is sexual abuse? So statistics show that one in five women in the United States and one in four men have experienced sexual violence in their lifetime. That's a that's, lot of people. It's a lot. Yeah. And that's just what's reported. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just self-report probably in research surveys. This isn't reported to the police. So many people don't report because of, you know, fear of retaliation or right. shame, guilt. So many the experience kids. that you have to go through, you know. After you've been victimized already, you know, mm-hmm. going through the hospital process and it's almost like being re-victimized and yeah. traumatized. Yeah, we do victimize uh, the victims of sexual abuse so much and we don't believe them so often. Mm-hmm. And there are many facts. I know you did some looking into a lot of stats and I don't want to just throw numbers out randomly, but I, you know... I think some of the ones I do, we do want to highlight are the real important ones like nationwide. So in America, 81% of women, 43% of men have experienced some kind of sexual harassment or sexual assault in their lifetime. I realize sexual harassment is different than sexual assault, but 81% of women, and I almost want to guarantee it's more than 43% of men, but mm-hmm. you men have such a, such a bad place. I mean, such it's unfortunate because it's even harder for men to report this, to admit this, to talk yeah. about this than it is for women. So I'm, I just want to say, I almost guarantee it's more than that with men. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you. So in 2018, one of the stats that I looked up was that approximately 734,000 people were raped, threatened, or attempted to be raped. Mm. Um, And that's just the number of people that reported it. So about 25% are reported to the police. It's it's just the numbers are amazing. 54% of male victims report being raped by an acquaintance. Um, I think that's something we'll get into a little bit later as to who typically, you know, is the is the victimizer. Out of that 52% of male victims report being raped by an acquaintance and only 15% report being raped by a stranger. That's important. I think we do have this boogeyman idea in the back of our mind, like walk to your car quickly at night, mm-hmm. because, but it's the people that you know that you're you know, subject to be victimized by. I can tell you all the folks that I've worked with over the years, and there have been a lot that have reported to me that they've had some kind of sexual abuse or misconduct in their life. I can't think of many that were outside the family. Yeah. And that's such a hard thing because then when you tell, I have had countless clients say, I told my mom and she didn't believe me. She said Mm -hmm. that didn't happen. Don't say that. Um, I believe uh, women, single women with children, it, when they bring a male into their home, the chances of uh, them perpetrating sexual assault against the children goes up by 50%. Yeah. So wow. a single mom who's struggling, she wants a mate. Maybe they help financially. They abuse that, that mate abuses the child. And the mom says, don't tell me that I, I, I can't get rid of this guy. 
He helps mm-hmm. pay the bills. I had one client say that her grandmother sent her to the grocery store to get a few little things she had on a list without money. And she said, go see Mr. So-and-so who works there. He'll give it to you. He did, but he also, he, he sexually abused her. Mm. And that was the exchange for groceries. And grandma knew when she sent her that that was going to happen, but that's the only way she had to feed her family. Wow. Mm. Yeah. And it's, you know, oftentimes it leads to suicide. I, I know two families in particular, you know, just that I've worked with that their kids committed suicide because the parent didn't believe them. Mm-hmm. No, they felt like they had no other option because they were living in a home that they didn't feel safe in. And the people that were supposed to keep them safe told them they didn't believe them. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm sure we could, if we drilled down into why on earth wouldn't you believe your child, that gets complicated. Mm-hmm. That gets real complicated. One of the things that I was really kind of astonished by was the cost of um, rape and how it affects people's education, their employment. It just derails those things. And it Mm -hmm. said basically that it can cost a person nearly $250,000 in income loss in their lifetime Mm -hmm. when they've been sexually violated. Because they miss work. They have to, if they get themselves involved with the criminal justice system, depression, mm-hmm. medical bills, therapy, lost time, lost wages. If you're in school and it happens, often people drop out. So they don't um, increase their education, which costs them money in the long run. And I work on a college campus, so it ma- mattered to me a lot. And sadly, one in four undergraduate college women reported that they experienced sexual assault or some kind of misconduct while they were um, in, in college. And that, that, that information came from 33 of major universities in the United States. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and I think the one that another one, they all blow me away, but half of the female victims of rape reported that the rape was from an intimate partner, Hmm. somebody they knew, somebody they could trust. They thought they could trust 40% reported it was by an acquaintance. That leaves less than 10% of people you don't know. Mm. So one of the things was um, a lot of obviously sexual abuse is traumatic. And it talked about our information, our resources talked about, you know, two weeks following an assault, 94% of women um, in one study reported feeling symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, flashbacks, insomnia, um, hypervigilance, anger, anxiety, depression. So mm-hmm. it's something that affects obviously close to the experience, but these are things that can last a lifetime. 94%. Mm-hmm. It's almost all of them. Like we alluded to earlier, there are different types of sexual assault. Some people don't even realize that they've experienced it until they become educated you know, Mm -hmm. about the different forms, any type of non-consensual sexual activity or conduct qualifies as sexual assault. And just some of those is rape, stranger, acquaintance, date, rape, an attempted rape, inappropriate touching of any kind. When someone touches you in those places inappropriately, it is not okay. Incest, 
sexual child, child sexual abuse. And that's a subject of its own that we'll talk about in a little more detail in a minute. Um, and of course, vaginal, anal, oral intercourse, but even like exhibitionism, voyeurism, obscene phone calls, and sexual harassment all fall under a type of sexual assault. So most state laws kind of have their own definitions around, you know, what is sexual abuse. And um, basically, uh, in, in summary, most of them boil down to a person did not give consent for sexual contact. They were threatened. They were unconscious. They were maybe drugged, mentally disabled, um, or even a minor. A minor cannot give consent. Mm-hmm. And the reactions to being the victim of sexual assault can be emotional, psychological, can be physical. Some of the emotional things you might see is guilt, shame, self-blame, embarrassment, fear, distrust, isolation, sadness, feeling a little bit out of control, like they don't have any control when someone takes that away from you. Mm -hmm. Anger, just complete numbness and denial and shock and and confusion. Mm -hmm. One thing in that emotional category, the self-blame, I think is something that comes up in a lot of the different types of abuse that we've talked about, just kind of feeling like, what did I do? What, you know, how did I invite this? How did I bring this upon myself? And well, so and our really system kind of, really reinforces that or like mm -hmm. a criminal justice system reinforces right. that so much. Yeah. So what were you wearing? What was the behavior you were engaging in? You know, did you say something that mm -hmm. would warrant, you know, consent, like things like that, that just are ridiculous. Some of the psychological and physical reactions that people report are nightmares, um, sometimes experiencing flashbacks or re-experiencing the assault. Disassociation is a big one um, during the act and also after. Depression and other mood disorders can, can develop mental, you know, just mental health issues overall. Difficulty concentrating. We talked about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety. Substance use is a big one. Oftentimes people go on to develop substance use disorders, low self-esteem, and then thoughts of self-harm, which we just covered, um, become an issue oftentimes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And dissociation. I, I, I was so thankful for a period of time. I um, consulted at a treatment center that specializes in dissociative disorder. And what I learned, sometimes... Um, like dissociate, dissociative identity disorder, DID, or what people used to refer to as multiple personality disorder. I think we have a real uh, wrong idea of what that is. Mm -hmm. Many people who were abused, who sexually abused as a child and, and a lot of like violent sexual abuse, they dissociate, uh, they dissociated to survive mm -hmm. what was going on. So they do develop dissociative identity disorder. Um, and it was a survival mechanism for them. I mean, just a simple survival mm -hmm. mechanism just to remove themselves. And the way that I would hear clients describe uh, situations is it was as if I was watching it happen. Mm -hmm. And that was to, because the child has no comprehension of what on earth is going on. So they have to do something to survive and, and take themselves out of the pain physically, mentally, psychologically, that's happening to them. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I will share, like, I, I am a survivor of sexual abuse. And, and that's one thing that I've experienced is just huge gaps in my memory. I don't remember a lot of my childhood. I don't remember, I don't remember vacations. I see myself in videos, you know, vacation videos and holidays and things like that. And I don't recognize that kid because I really don't have memories. I have a few a handful of bad memories, mm -hmm. but you know, my sister can, I always say jokingly, she can remember coming out of the womb. She remembers <laughs> everything. Mm -hmm. And so she'll tell me things from time to time that I just have zero recollection of. And I think that that was my brain's way of, you know, taking care of me on a physical and emotional level was mm -hmm. by just disassociating and blocking that out. As I've gotten older and kind of done some work through therapy, that's there's some stuff that's kind of surfaced. But for the most part, it's just kind of memories and, and a period of my life that I just can't remember. And it makes mm -hmm. me sad because I don't remember being a kid. I don't remember experiencing childhood things, which is is a struggle. Mm -hmm. And it's because it is a protection. It, it's like it, it's better for you not to remember because it is painful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like our body does that for us you know our, our body and our brain does that for us to keep us safe right and it happens like in car accidents and extreme mm -hmm. stress situations like it's it's not just an abuse like anytime our body is under that extreme type of pressure it's something that an instinct that just kicks in i think yeah and um like i know we're not talking at this very moment about um therapy but a type of therapy that's amazingly uh a type of therapy that's incredibly beneficial for people like with lost memories and DID and PTSD is EMDR, eye movement and desensitization reprocessing. It's phenomenal. I mean, I watched it work. To be honest, when I first heard about it, I was like, that's witchcraft. <laughs> that's <laughs> wacky. And then when I saw it in action, I was like, this is amazing. Just mm -hmm. amazing. It really helps a person take those old memories and that it because thoughts and feelings and memories program patterns and kind of maps in our brain mm -hmm. and and emdr and some of the other dialectical uh, behavioral therapies help reprogram those patterns and those maps in our brain where we have different, we have a different outcome. So rather than having the same thoughts and feelings related to the activity, you don't forget the activity. You just don't feel this about the activity the same way that you do. You don't feel that pain. You just mm -hmm. experience it as an experience rather than, it, and I'm probably doing something that's really in depth, a disservice by making it sound so simple. And they did an ep uh, one of the episodes of The Real Housewives that I watched. She, one of the housewives experienced the home invasion. And oh, yeah. one of the episodes they did, they showed her basically going through EMDR therapy. And they did a really incredible job of kind of showing the experience kind mm -hmm. of start to finish. And it was great to see that on such a, that's you know, amazing. a platform. That's amazing. That's, that's, that's really amazing. I, I'm glad that they showed that somewhere like that. That's, yeah. So one thing I think is really important is to discuss, like, what is consent? And consent is basically, you know, freely giving a person permission to engage in a sexual activity or some kind of touch 
something physical um, and understanding that at any time you can change your mind, you know, you can say no. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that is where victimization can happen when you're in an act and someone decides that they're uncomfortable with it. They say no, but the person continues. I think that's why like sexual safe words are important Mm -hmm. that couples can have, especially if someone has experienced sexual abuse in the past, Mm -hmm. because sometimes in, you know, it's, this isn't a conversation about sex, but, you know, sometimes in passion saying yes, saying no is not, is not, uh, it's just not that simple. Mm -hmm. So having a safe word that you would never utter, you know, in another time. Exactly. Is that your safe word, Joseph? (laughs) Banana. Um, but absolutely. So that, so that you can, and your partner then respects it. That's why like consent isn't as simple as yes or no. It really is about communicating and talking and mm-hmm. talking about your desires, your needs, your wants, your levels of comfort. Mm-hmm. And it's so like, it's such a taboo topic to discuss mm-hmm. sex and especially in our relationships. I think that there's so much shame that that comes up when we find ourselves kind of having conversations around it. But I think it's an important conversation to have because uh-huh. you want your partner to know you know, sexually what, what, what you desire, what's important to you. And and for me personally, I want to know, you know, what that is for my partner. So mm-hmm. I think it's an important discussion to have. No doubt. And just, just like when I started talking about it, I was like, oh, we're not going to be talking. I'm not trying to talk about sex, but <laughs> you know, it's just like, we're not programmed, but we are all sexual. We are mm-hmm. all, I mean, we are all, I mean, and sex is something most people experience in their lifetime. So why we don't talk about it? We don't talk about that. And we don't talk about death. It's just, those are, and those are the two most common things about all of us. Mm-hmm. While we're on the topic of what is and isn't regarding child sexual abuse, big, bold, block, red letters, note to self, no child can consent to sex. Child sexual abuse is any sexual encounter between a child and an older person. Because with children, there is always a power differential. There's a knowledge, there's a gratification differential. And we can't forget that. We can't forget that there's not an okay sex activity with a Mm -hmm. child. I think it's, you know, one thing that I've heard over the years, and it It's so frustrating, but, you know, especially boys talking about being abused or sexual, inappropriate sexual contact and a parent maybe saying, oh, it's just boys being boys, boys, you know, explore and, you know, they, they like, it's okay. Like, it's just, you know, something, something normal that happens growing up. Yeah. Playing doctor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, um, and, and if it's you and somebody that's your age, there may be some exploration in childhood, but not mm-hmm. you and someone older than you. Right. And that's where it's come up for me in my life. It's mm-hmm. not. And, you know, to be completely honest, as somebody who's had the experience, it feels different. It feels different whenever you're being abused than when you're consensually exploring with someone that's your age. Mm-hmm. Even when you're little and don't know what in the world's going on, it feels different. When we're talking about child sexual abuse, in most cases, like you said, the abused child knows their abuser and the abuser is someone who has access to the child, family member, teacher, babysitter, 
only one in 10 cases of sexual abuse with the child involve a stranger. One in 10. Wow. One in 10. And uh, I, because my son went to Catholic school in order to volunteer in his classroom, anyone, parents, friends, family, whoever um, had to take a class every year on um, sex abuse. You know, that's something that the Catholic church mandated after they went through their big scandal. And so I had to take a class every year. It was like a day long, incredibly informative. I don't regret uh, or begrudge having to take it at all, but I remember they said, um, you know, it's, it's not, somebody who looks scary. It's usually somebody in your house and that the people who are at risk are like maybe a single mother or a family who they work a lot. And so they don't have time to pick little Jimmy up from school. So a nice neighbor says, Hey, I'm going that way. I'll pick him up. And that nice neighbor sees a great opportunity uh, Mm -hmm. because the child is, is, um, not being ignored, but there's an, uh, there's an in for them, you know, to do something kind. And the parents are just grateful. What a kind person that they are. They're over in that neighborhood anyway. So they pick him up and it's just an opportunity to, um, exploit that situation. Right. And, right. and most childhood sexual abusers are men, um, whether and, and the victims are male and female, but 90 to 95 percent of sexual abusers are men doesn't mean women can't be. So I think it's important to point out that um, children may be abused in a variety of situations. And some of those situations are two person dynamic relationships involving the abuser and the victim, um, group sex uh, that involve one or more abusers or one or more victims. Um, sex rings, sex, sex trafficking, child pornography, prostitution. It talks about abuse being part of, you know, rituals, r- ritualistic behaviors. And it went on to say that 35% of sexual abuse is perpetrated by adolescents ages 13 to 17. And 93% of those adolescents do not continue offending when they become adults. So That's a big deal. That's a lot of information that that's, mm-hmm. that's a lot of tough things to hear, but next episode, we are going to talk just about how to support someone and how to get help yourself. Definitely visit our show notes. We have resources there and we also have links to where we found this information. We know it's a lot of information, but like we always say, knowledge leads to a life lived better. We want to provide anyone in need of resources a few phone numbers. For the suicide hotline in the United States, just pick up any phone and dial 988. You can reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. And the Child Abuse Hotline is 1-800-4-A-CHILD. That is 1-800-422-4453. Thank you for listening to Life Lived Better with Paula and Joseph. 